there. This is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love talking to people that are creative about how they do their thing and how they hang in. And today my guest is an author. His name is Sam Staggs. He's written a book called Did You Sleep With the Models? It's all about his five years as editor-in-chief of three gay magazines in the 80s, Mandate, Honcho, and Playguy. But instead of publishing it as a traditional book, he's been releasing a chapter every week on the platform Substack. And that's how I discovered it. And his writing is really great, and and it really captured my imagination because I read those magazines. I still have a bunch of them, actually. Um, And it was just such a snapshot of a time and a place. And so I reached out to him, and we made the interview happen. Uh, He's also written some other books. He wrote a a book about All About Eve. He wrote a book about Sunset Boulevard. He wrote a book about the Gabor sisters. So a really interesting writer, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, But before we get to that, I want to remind you that this podcast, Dennis Anyone, is brought to you by me. Um, one, one day I'll say Colgate, but not today. It's just me. Um, but if you like what you hear, there are two ways you can support us. You can, and I say us like it's, there's an us. It's just me and my dog Enzo. So I guess there is an us. Um, you can go to DennisAnyone.net slash support and leave a tip in my virtual tip jar. Help me cover my expenses. I always appreciate that. Or you can become a subscriber to DNR Studios. That's a group of shows that I'm part of. For a monthly fee, you get my show early, and you get a lot of other great shows, and you can learn about that at dnrstudios.com. All right, that's it for the plugs. Here now is the interview with Sam Staggs. Hi, Sam. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, describe for my listeners what exactly... Did you sleep with the models? Is because I understand that it's a book, but you you've started releasing chapters on this platform, Substack. Is that right? That's correct. And may I correct just one thing? Sure. Although Substack is called a uh, a website, a newsletter website. Right. Actually, everything under the sun is posted on there. So my my uh, Substack uh, entry, so to speak is a book. It's not a, not a newsletter. It's one chapter per week from my book, Did You Sleep With the Models, um, with, along with bonus chapters just from time to time, maybe one or two a week or something like that. But basically, every Friday, I post a new chapter from the book. I started on December 22nd, and uh, what, uh, three and a half months later, I have 500 subscribers, and I'm very, very pleased over that. Well, I read about it on Queerty, and the book is about, and these posts are about, your time as the editor-in-chief of three gay magazines in the 80s, Honcho, Playguy, and Mandate, which I I have a bunch of them surrounding me right now. I have them. I have a bunch of them. where did you Where did you get them? Like where I bought them at the them? time, and I've just held on to them. And then some of them, I'll notice that they're used. Like right in front of me right now, I have a mandate with an interview you did with Pauline Kael, the film critic. Um, I'm looking oh, at it. Oh yes. Well, first, I'm, I'm I'm flattered that you have that you held on to those copies. You know, I tried at the time very much to to make to turn mandate into the gay play. Guy. Right. There's really interesting things that- in there. I must have said that to someone at the time because it still turns up online, you know, here and there. Right. But, uh, you know, Pauline was a friend of mine. I knew her for years before I went to Mandate, and she was such a contrarian, and, uh, you know, she had such a following, certainly not only among gay men, but I think that uh, was a large segment of her audience, and... uh, so I, uh, I had been at the magazine for about a year, and uh, I, just, I was doing all kinds of interviews. I, I, I did Maureen Stapleton, but that was after I interviewed Pauline, and, and my associate editors also did a number of interviews. I just wrote, uh, I just posted a picture yesterday that I took of Armistead Maupin talking to associate editor Freeman Gunter, and that's coming up in a, a few weeks. But anyway, Pauline was absolutely wonderful. You know, she... Uh, I was. I had been rather unhappy with a review that she wrote in the summer of 1981. That was before I went to the to the magazines. I went there at the end of 1981, and she she did a review of um, of uh, Richard George Cooper's 
Rich and yeah, Famous. Yeah, I just read the article and, yesterday. Yeah, you guys throw down a little oh, bit about yeah. Rich and Famous. Uh, anyway, I, in, a, in a future chapter coming up about Pauline, I, I expand on that and I, why I was angry at the time and why many other gay men were angry at her review. She, she explained herself rather well. And then in this chapter coming up in a few months, maybe, whenever it does, whenever it comes up, I, I, I say that I recently watched Rich and Famous again, and Pauline was absolutely right. It's rather a demented movie. I don't know whether whether your listeners uh, would agree with me or not on that. Right, point. Jacqueline Bissett, wasn't it Candace Bergen? But reading the interview and she's defending herself, I'm like, I think that makes sense. It, like her her retort, I think I'm like that tracks. I think I'm on her side. <laughs> yes, yes, I uh, yes, I was not necessarily at the time, but I I agree with you. I I am on her side yeah. now. It was. Not a good movie by any stretch of the imagination. Well, as somebody that read these magazine and, and, and have kept them around, um, I always wondered what it was like in those offices. Because sometimes I was a fan of Honcho Overload, which was the digest with, like, the, all the dirty stories, right? And, I, and sometimes yeah, I thought yeah. maybe they have all these writers doing this or maybe it's just one guy doing it. Like, you just don't know what it's like. So reading your stories about what it was like to work in that office and – edit those magazines and bring in these interviews and things like that. It's just, I just find it really captures my imagination because I always wondered what it was like behind the scenes. How did you end up there? Well, I went to, I was unemployed. I had been teaching at the Rhodes School, which was a, a prep school in the, on the Upper West Side. I taught, I had been teaching there for a while and I was not rehired. Uh, so I ended my, uh, my time there teaching English in June of 1981, and I had a wonderful summer of being unemployed and drawing a little, you know, a dab of money from uh, unemployment right. and all that. But by the, by, by the time, by November, I was looking very much for a job. An old friend of mine from the South was leaving his job at Modernismo. That was the parent company of Mandate Honcho and Play Guy. Right. He was leaving his job there as general manager. He was moving to Memphis. So he said to me, why don't you take over my job? And I said, I can't even balance my checkbook, <laughs> let alone be a, become a, a, the general manager of a, of a company like that. Right. And he said, I'll train you. So I went for an interview with George Bavidi, the, uh, the publisher, the owner of the company. Right. And uh, I guess I made a, a, an impression because he hired me after a few minutes. It, but George was such a such a loose cannon. He was he was like a character from a Dickens novel. He really was and hilarious, straight, right? And, he was straight. And, oh yes, yes, a straight man, uh, hilarious and maddening. Uh, he, he nearly drove me mad sometimes over the years. <laughs> but looking back now, I really I have a great deal of affection for him because he took a big chance on me. Right. Okay. I went as general manager. I couldn't do a damn thing, you know. I was totally lost, and I thought, well, I'll stay here for a couple of months, and he'll fire me, and I'll be back on unemployment. Yep. But that didn't happen because the editor of Mandate, Honcho, and Play Guy uh, was fired. He was a very nice man, and he and I didn't know each other very well at all. I got in touch with him in 2020 when I started this book. Right. And he has... He died a year later, but we had a, a lot of correspondence. He, he told me a great many things that are in the book. Anyway, he was fired, and I said to George, the publisher, let me become the editor. I know I can do it. He, he hesitated. He was absolutely astonished that, that I even would say such a thing to him, but he gave me the job. And after a rocky beginning <laughs> with all sorts of difficulties and problems, uh, let's see, I became the editor, I think it was in January, maybe January or February of 1982. By April of that year, we were all working together, the art directors, the associate editor, and I. We were all pulling together, and we, we, we increased sales of the magazines, and, you know, from there on, it was relatively smooth sailing. As far as the office, it was not... It was not radically different from any other office. Certainly, it was not all that different from a, uh, the offices of Vanity Fair right. or Publishers Weekly or, you know, Look or Life or one of the old magazines. 
But, of course, it was, uh, you know, the, the walls in our department were covered with pictures of naked men. Yeah. So it, uh, it, it was uh, rather a shock to, to certain visitors who, who saw all of that, you know, very unexpected, I think. What gave you the confidence to think you could do it? I had, been a, I had worked one summer as a proofreader uh, before I moved to New York. I, was a, I had written a number of reviews for, for small magazines. I had written a master's thesis, and I, I saw, I, I could see in books and magazines what needed to be changed. Right. Uh, typos, and, and you know, I, could, I, I, I just automatically knew this sentence could have been written better right. than it is. Uh, I had not done a lot of editing, but I had, I had actually worked, uh, I had volunteered on a, uh, a gay paper in New York, a short-lived gay paper called Gays Week, and I had edited some of the articles there, and I had sort of coached a few of the writers, you know, helped them along. So that was more or less the extent of my experience. But I knew I could do it, and somehow I convinced George that I could. Right. Now, you describe in one of your posts about the difference between the three magazines in terms of what they were looking for in terms of models, like Honcho or More Leathery. Uh, and, and like mandate had a certain look and I just really got a kick out of reading those. And one of the descriptors was eye contact. Like that was important, right? Yes, very much so. Mandate in general was more or less, uh, the GQ look, right. uh, w- without the, without the clothes, of course. Right. Uh, but, and, and as I said earlier, I wanted to turn it into something that would resemble a gay play, uh, playboy. Right. And I did that. Uh, of course, we had to have a lot of erotic fiction, a certain amount. Sure. But I'm just right now, I'm working on a chapter. I'm reproducing an article from 1982 called Gay History on Stamps. We were contacted by a, a stamp collector who had spent years assembling his vast collection of gays, bisexuals, and uh, people from history and mythology who were suspected of being gay. Either they were known to be to have been gay, right. Oscar Wilde, or they were suspected, like uh, President Buchanan, the 15th president of the country. So it, it was beautifully laid out. It's very colorful, and that's coming up in a, a month or so. Uh, I'm reproducing the entire article and talking a bit about Paul, who died a few years ago. But uh, I, 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 it was a very creative time, uh, for me, because I I tried to do things that none of the other gay magazines were doing. Right. And uh, but back to mandate, the, the standard was more or less a GQ look, well groomed models from roughly twenty five to forty. Honcho, as you pointed out, was more leather and uh, you know a bit of a hint of S and M, shall we say, nice. and uh, tougher, older guys. And Play Guy was the, the Twink magazine. Right. It was sort of the stepchild, too. We, whatever we couldn't fit into the other magazines went into Play Guy right. until 1985. And recently, I w- I've gone through all of the issues that I edited several times. Right. And 1985, Play Guy really took off. I'm, I have no apologies to make about it of my, for my final year there. Because we, uh, it expanded, you know, we expanded the, the page number, and uh, it sold very well, all of that. So that's basically the distinction uh, among the magazines. But, of course, there was a bit of overlap. There had to be, because we just didn't have the resources or the money to do what Play Guy and GQ and all the other big magazines did. Right. And you talk about eye contact as being important in photo shoots. That's something that readers yes. respond to. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. There was another word in one of the descriptions that I want to incorporate into my daily life, which is brutito. Is that the word? Which is sexy, <laughs> ugly, right? One of the it, like the honcho models it, could be brutito. Is that right? Well, any yes, others could be too. <laughs> and there are quite a few. There are quite a few men, uh, you know, spread out over the the years that I was there, who would qualify as that. It's basically, if you remember Jean-Paul Belmondo, the French actor, right. uh, he was brutito. He was not really handsome, but there was something 
sexy about yeah. him. He was nor was he really ugly. Right. But in Italian, brutito means basically ugly, handsome. Yes. I think one example that comes to mind is uh, Joaquin Phoenix. Interesting. I think he's a he's a riveting character, right. a, a riveting actor, uh, playing a number of characters. You wouldn't call him handsome, but there's something so. And so appealing about him sometimes. I haven't seen him recently, so sure. I don't know if that continues or not. Uh, there are certain men like that. I, you, I think we all know. We all have seen that kind. I love the Brutitos. And also, if I were a gay club guy, I would start a club called Brutito, like a club night. I think that would be really fun. <laughs> well, I encourage you to do that. I'll, I'll be your first customer. Which is your most successful magazine of the three? Was one way big, more popular than others? Mandate was the flagship right magazine, yeah. and our first, our first attention, our best articles and interviews and, and photo layouts went into Mandate. All three were up and running by the time I got there as editor-in-chief, but I, wanted, I didn't want to continue that look. Obviously, you know, it was a new decade, right. the 80s, and uh, Ronald Reagan was in the White House, and, and Gays were under attack from all angles. Right. So we ran a lot of rather aggressive political articles. And a, uh, a, one of our contributors wrote an article in 83 or 84 called La Cage au Reagan, pointing out the many, many horrific things that the Reagans, that the Reagan administration had done against gays. And the illustration was Reagan, Ronald Reagan in drag. It's coming up. I'm reproducing. Oh, good! It's going to be part of. It's going to be one of your posts. Yes, it is. The, not the entire article, which is rather out of date. Right. You know, we've we've had much worse since Reagan. Right. We never thought there would be a worse one, but then along came Trump. Yeah. But I am reproducing the uh, the illustration, yes. and I've captioned. I've captioned it. There is nothing like a day. Right. Uh, speaking of the Reagans, in some of your chapters, you write about some of the more Hollywood stuff that you cover outside of. Mandate and, and Honcho and Play Guy and, and the books you've written and in one of your um, posts there is a the notion that Nancy Reagan gave good head which was sort of like a rumor um, that I had never heard well, so thank you for bringing that into my I mind. don't of course I don't know from personal experience <laughs> but uh, John Houston John Houston said in a uh, Playboy interview oh I think maybe in the perhaps in the eighties right. in the eighties he said that uh, he said outright. Uh, Nancy Reagan gave the best head in Hollywood. Uh, whether he knew from personal experience, I'm not sure, but uh, she did have that reputation. Right. And then, I, I, I don't know if you've read the chapter about Joe. I did. Montaigne. That's, where it, that's where it came up, yeah. <laughs> so I had lunch with the wonderful, that magnificent actress, Joan Fontaine. Yeah. I had lunch with her in 2006 in Carmel when she was 89 years old and looked not a day over... 55 or 60. Amazing. And I don't remember how the subject of the Reagans came up, but she leaned across the table and said in that wonderful actressy voice, well, you know, Nancy Reagan, she was nothing but a CS. And I, it didn't quite register yeah, like, at what the is time. CS? That's not C-U-N-T. Well, like, what is that? I, I knew she wasn't calling the former first lady a Christian scientist, but uh, a couple of a minute later, it registered. Oh, she's calling her a cocksucker! Oh my god! But so so delicately, very class. If you're going to do it, that's the way to do it. It's the classy way to do it. Well, and if you've ever read Joan Fontaine's uh, autobiography yeah. called uh, "A No Bed of Roses." You'll know that she she knew where the bodies were buried. She got around. She I knew everything about everybody. So I think she can be trusted, even yeah. as much as John Houston could be. Now you you call your your uh, blog or your Substack post. Do you just sleep with the models? And that's going to be the name of the book. And I'm sure that's what everybody wants to know. But from reading it, I felt like you didn't see the models a lot. They would come in from time to time, but it wasn't like models were running through every day doing photo shoots, right? That is very true. I was the, the the title of the book "Did You Sleep with the Models?" comes from the question that I was often yes. asked because I, that is the question that, that people ask me. But as I say, in in some place, I think a, a, a chapter either coming up or already posted, 
They didn't really want to know whether I slept with the models. They wanted to know whether they could sleep with the right. models. But and many, many of our readers had the impression that all we did all day long was, was look at the models and, you know, they would strip off and, and they would be photographed there in the offices. Not true. Not true at all. Uh, most of our – in fact, we, we did not meet the majority of the models right. because they were photographed in California, uh, abroad, Texas, you know, the Midwest, you name it, by various freelance photographers that we had uh, added to our repertoire over the years. And then the, the photographers would send us a package of color slides. That's how it was done back then before digital photography. They would send us a, a package. The art directors and I would select 5, 10, 15 or so uh, uh, of the slides. And uh, then they would, be, uh, they would end up in one or the other of the magazines. Uh, occasionally, a model did come to, to New York. Uh, I let's see. It was a week or so ago when I uh, posted a picture of uh, Bill Henson. Yeah, uh, and he was there. Sailor uh, in the Wild, know, I, if I, I'm not I, mistaken, was he Sailor in the Wild? Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's right. He came with Chuck uh, Chuck Holmes, who was the owner and uh, CEO of Falcon Studio. Right. And uh, I, I did. I talked a few weeks ago in a post. I talked about Al Parker. I looked up one day. And there was Al Parker in my doorway. He had come in. He was a friend of the art director, Cliff. Right. And uh, so, you know, I met, I met Al Parker that one time, his real name being Drew Oaken, and his friends always called him Drew. It, it was, he was only Al Parker as, a, as his professional name. Well, you, ran an, um, you wrote about meeting him and, and those memories, but you also ran an interview with him. And... I, I just found him fascinating. Like, um, he, he was Jewish, and but had a thing for foreskin, so he had surgery to get his foreskin put back. Is that right? Yes. I didn't know that until long after I had left the magazine. I don't, uh, you know, he, he and I didn't know each other well, right. so, of course, he wouldn't have talked to me about it. Uh, I don't, he apparently didn't have any real connection with Jewish religion or Jewish tradition. Right. Uh, like like every Jewish male, he had been circumcised at uh, when he was eight days old, and uh, I don't know. It was a it's an interesting pathway that he followed because he did have that that uh, fetish, that fascination with foreskin, right. and I guess he was in his thirties when he underwent some sort of surgery to have one put on. Wow. And back then, it's wild. There was a quote in the Al Parker article that jumped out to me and made me smile. Um, I think the, the interviewer asked him, um, you know, how do you define porn? And his answer was, anything that can get you thrown in jail in Texas, Tennessee, or Florida. And I thought, that's today. That's today. Those same three unfortunately, states. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. Yes, unfortunately, it's very true. And not only those states, but, you know, elsewhere right. as well. It's... Uh, it's in a way, it's worse now than the '80s. We thought Reagan was bad, but you know, I would ta- I would have taken him back in 2016 in preference to the to the gangster Trump. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, you talk about like your look at the time. You were a, you you describe yourself as a clone, and I look at the pictures, and there are all these sexy guys with the mustaches. To me, because I came of age later, that represented a really sexy time. Was it a sexy place to work? Was it in the air, or was it just like? You got a lot of work to do. Focus, you know. Was it a sexy place to be? New York, New York was a sexy place to be from the from the time that I got there uh, in the late seventies until well, the, until the time I left, I guess, right. uh, in the late eighties. Um, of course, there was, AIDS happened. The first article about AIDS was in the New York Times, I believe it. Early July of 1981. Right. Uh, later that year is when I went to uh, Modernismo as general manager, and then early 82, I became the editor in chief. So there was there were these two there were these parallel things going on: the sexiness of New York, the sexiness of working at these magazines, and you know meeting some of the models. Right. Uh, and then the specter of AIDS, which was haunting. The, the city, and soon began to haunt the world. Uh, it was a, 
you know, I, I always think of Dickens, uh, the, the beginning of uh, uh, the novel. Uh, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Yeah, and you were somebody that was a tastemaker. You were you were putting things out in the world and trying to figure out how to navigate that. Like, did you guys write a lot yeah, about AIDS? We did. Uh, George Stefano was uh, uh, an associate editor. He came a little bit later. He came about 1983, I believe. And he was he was a very good journalist, and he was very much interested in in political issues and certainly the issue of AIDS. He uh, he covered it rather well. I didn't feel qualified to to write about medical issues, and I didn't do very much writing at the time because I was just too busy right. with editing and all sorts of other duties. So uh, I, I in, a, in a chapter coming up at some point, I sort of run a, a list of the articles we did, not only about AIDS, but about other medical issues, such as uh, hepatitis and uh, the, the, the phenomenon of hanging, erotic hanging, which is rather specialized, I suppose, right. but it, it, it does happen. Asphyxiation, and like the people that are into that. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I was, I was under a certain amount of pressure from certain members of my staff and elsewhere uh, not to run stories about characters practicing unsafe sex. Right. It was a very difficult uh, decision to make. I don't believe in censorship, and my feeling was Pornography, which, you know, those stories were, let's face it. Pornography is a good outlet. Right, it's a fantasy. And the readers, readers, have, uh, we have to assume that readers know the difference between fantasy right. and reality. It's an escape for people. Many times. Yeah. Many times they do not. But are we going to control them? Are we going to become everybody's governess? Right. You know, that's what, that's what the, the right wing would like to happen right now. It's. There's no real answer right. to, to, the, to the conundrum. Yeah. Did you have a favorite model that you ever met and got to know? Uh, yeah, but I'm not going to tell you who it was. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> well, you might call him up. You'll, next, you'd want his phone number. Right on. All right. No, I will, I will tell you, uh, I think it was, it was the last Friday's post. Yeah. A young man sent his uh, pictures. He was from the Midwest. They were quite uh, quite fetching normally uh, these pictures were you know they were taken in a motel in front of a tv screen right and we would politely decline and send them back but th i decided that this young man uh, deserved to be a model he had never done anything of the kind i think he was he was bisexual or basically straight so i brought him to new york and he was photographed and he appeared in the magazine and he spent the weekend with me, a very nice weekend, and uh, then uh, he appeared. I won't tell you which magazine because I'm guarding his privacy even these many years later. Right. Uh, about a, oh, a year or so later, he called me in great distress. He had been fired from his job because a colleague had seen his pictures in, uh, in, on, in, in one of the magazines. Right. Uh, and... There was nothing I could do. You know, he had not been coerced. He had come of his own right. free will to New York. But the story has rather a happy ending. I, he and I stayed in touch for a while, and I looked him up online recently before when I was writing the book. He now has a, a multi-million dollar business. He's married with several grown children. He's in his 60s, 60s and still looks quite attractive. So... Uh, if he wants to get in touch, I'm I'm free for another weekend. I love that. Yeah, and and you you <laughs> tracked him down. That's that's wild. Um, there was a tension between your company and Colt, the big you know the big um, porn company when you started, but you you helped mend that fence. Is that right? I did, and I never could find out from George and from uh, John Devere what what had happened. Right. But there was a, an unhappiness. Uh, between Modernismo and Colt. So a uh, few months after I became uh, the editor-in-chief, I went to California to meet all of our contributors out there, and I had lunch with Jim French, who was the, the head of Colt. I think he, he had, at some point, he went under the name of Rip Colt. Uh, 
I'm not sure why, but he it's, That's a uh, he great did porny all, name, yeah. I love it. Oh, yes, isn't it? He did all of the photography, I think 100% or certainly close to 100% of the, of the photography at Coke. And, of course, Coke had a very distinct look. A Coke model could be spotted from, from a mile right. away. Yeah. Uh, Jim French was not a cordial person at all. It was a rather uncomfortable lunch, and I suspect he was a Republican, like uh, as our publisher was. He said to me, you have to be very careful about radical politics in this business. Uh, But uh, for whatever reason, despite the uncomfortable lunch and the fact that we did not really connect, for whatever reason, I won him back uh, to the magazines, and from then on, it was... You know, we uh, there were no quarrels. I I would call him from time to time on the phone, and he he sent uh, regular uh, submissions of his models, which of course we used. Uh, the deal with the, the the studios in California and elsewhere, the deal was we gave them free ads, double page or single page ads in exchange for the use of their models. Perfect. So we saved, you know, George was such a tightwad. Right. We had to cut every possible corner. <laughs> of course. And, uh, and we did. Yeah. You know, my budget was minuscule. And I, uh, looking back, I wonder how I stretched it so far. We paid, the typical article was paid uh, at $75. Wow. Okay. The photography, a centerfold, was 150 a full page was, I believe, 75 or 100. So now, of course, you know, that was several decades ago. But uh, still, it, it, it was a paltry, a paltry budget. You write about when you became the editor. You became sort of a VIP in, in certain gay circles in New York. But a lot of the people that you interacted with that were working in mainstream culture were closeted. Um, Oh, yeah. I've yes. experienced that in my own career with, and, and I've, I, I came of age later and, you know, worked in that world later, but like interacting with people that were successful, but in the closet, it was, I didn't like the vibe. It made me feel, I guess I resented them or I don't know, but I think it must have been so much more intense at the time because you were one of the few people that were out being true, but you were around all of these people who probably had way bigger budgets than you. I don't know. What was it like to be around? so many closeted people working in culture in New York? Well, it was creepy. And, Thank and you. Yet I do. I, under, I understand the need for it because, yes. well, uh, let's say Vanity Fair. I, I know who basically who was gay there right. and who wasn't. And in, in a way, one, I'm thinking of one person in particular. Everybody knew he was gay. Right. I just, I think it wasn't talked about. Um, and then I just the other day I came across a, a, a the, on a Rolodex uh, from the from my mandate years I came across the name of a, of somebody from Vanity Fair a, a regular contributor who had called me wanting to get in touch with one of the models. Right. Uh, I didn't give out the information, but it was yeah it was closety in that way. But if you worked at Vanity Fair or the New York Times or the Post or the News or you know the TV of a TV station or whatever, you just couldn't afford to 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 right. be out. Right. They weren't wrong. I look at that now. I think part of my resentment is that they were in a way, but their values were different. But they weren't wrong. They weren't misreading the culture. But uh, it just seemed like it lacked some courage, I guess, for me. Um, it, it was just a. It was a survival technique. Yeah. And also, let's remember, very few people in show business were out. Right. People knew that Lily Tomlin was a lesbian. Right. Uh, people knew that Rock Hudson was gay, you know. It, but no, it, it was not admitted. It was just, it was always just a little bit below the surface. Right. Uh, it's so much easier now, you know. It's uh, there are certain people I wish would go back into the closet, <laughs> but they won't. <laughs> oh, that makes me laugh. You write about some of the models that there was this sort of like, I don't know. They th- they they thought it might catapult them to something more. I think I see that too around me sometimes. People think this this little bit of exposure or something is gonna change you know change their lives dramatically and it so seldom does did you see that as a strain in a lot of the models that thought that they were on their way to something big i did because many of them 
were naive. They yeah. came from small places, and they had they had dreamed about becoming a model. And somehow they had gotten their hands on copies of our magazines or some of the competitors, such right. as Blue Boy or Torso, and they thought that they thought that posing for one of these magazines was more or less the equivalent of being discovered by Hollywood right. in the 40s or 50s and being an overnight sensation like Tab Hunter or Rock Hudson or Paul Newman, somebody like that. The sad fact was that uh, in those days, if you dropped your pants and posed for a magazine, you could kiss, you could say goodbye to any kind of uh, future in the media or the movies right. or anywhere else. What's interesting uh, is that I, I, I think, think that's changing a little bit now because everybody has an OnlyFans and I don't know, everyone's naked on the internet. It just seems like maybe that's not as true now as it used to be. At least oh, I, I hope think, so. I, oh, yeah. I think nowadays if, if you keep your pants on, you're more likely to have a big career. Imagine a, a nice-looking man walking down the street in a suit and tie. He would be – he would cause a riot. <laughs> um, I was – in the same issue of Mandate where there's the Pauline Kale interview, there's another article called Future Gay 2000. Do you remember this? I do, and I I, I'm, I, I have bookmarked it to, to reread because I, I think it might be an interesting bonus. Oh, it's super uh, fun what, because what, it's what, imagining it what life would be for gay people in 2000. It's just, it's just really fun to read, and it's interesting. Yeah, I read it. Do you, do you think I should post yes. it as a bonus sometime? Okay, yeah, because it's kind of ahead. like a prediction. Like this is what we were imagining the future would be and what's right and what's wrong. I think it's – I loved it, and I just like the imagination How? of it. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, I, I, I say in one chapter or another that in whatever progress we, we had made after Stonewall, we never imagined that the sodomy laws would be struck down right. by the Supreme Court. No one, no sci-fi writer would ever have imagined that gay marriage would, be, would become legal right. in 2015. So we have come a long way, even though the, 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 the right-wing forces are trying to push us back. I don't think that's going to happen. When you were working at these magazines, did you feel rebellious? or was it, was it, Did it feel a little dangerous? Was there an edge to that that, that was exciting? Well, if you read this, my first chapter about the, uh, my rather harrowing experience with a, uh, a man who uh, came for an interview, who you know, passing himself off as a model, right. then you know there was an element of danger. But I was very naive. I, uh, I got a call that I had been on the, the job as editor-in-chief for a month or two, and the word had gotten around that, you know, there was a new editor, the magazines were going in a different direction, etc. I got a call one day from a man with a very nice voice, and he said, I would like to bring in uh, my pictures. Perhaps you could use them in Mandate or even Honcho. Right. And I said, well, I'm very busy. Could you could you drop them off with the receptionist or, or send them through the mail? And he was he was quite persuasive. He uh, he said, well, I really would like to come by just and say hello, you know, all that sort of thing. So I foolishly said, well, uh, come. It, it'll have to be seven thirty or eight tonight. I work late, and by then things will have settled down. So come then. He he turned up at the door. He was an absolute troll. He was right. Right. Looking. And I, I played it very well, I think. I, I, I was never an actor, but I guess I, I gave a good performance that night. I was very cordial. I said, come in to my office. And uh, we chatted for a moment about the weather or something. And then I said, well, let me see your portfolio. It was hundreds of slides, dozens at least. It seemed like hundreds of slides, the same pose of him in a, in a ratty, a sports jacket and a, and a dirty tie, hunched forward. He was most unfortunately unattractive. I guess he was a psycho of some sort right. who, who thought that he could be a model. And it was very much like the scene in um, in uh, the Jack Nicholson movie, The Shining, where his wife, Shelley Duvall, discovers that the novel he's been writing for months and months is all the same line. Right, all work and no hundreds play. Hundreds of pages, hundreds of pages, all, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. He had the it was a photograph equivalent like of that. Yeah, wow. exactly. So anyway, I talked, my, I talked my way through it, and I said, well, you know, leave some of these uh, slides with me, and I'll, 
I, I need to get the approval of my publisher, which was not true. My publisher didn't care what we used in the magazine right. so long as we sold copies. Uh, but he, he, was, he was clever. He, he somehow suspected that I was not uh, being on the level with him, and he became very aggressive, and he said, I intend to, I intend to pursue this. And so then he sort of grabbed his, uh, his portfolio and started to the door, and he said, I could kill you for this. And I stood up. I was ready to fight if I needed to. And I said, do you think in a place like this we don't have security? Night security is on the way now. Of course, there was no <laughs> night security. Not in the budget. But anyway, I got him out the, I got him out the door. Wow. He left, and, and I shook for a little while thinking of all the things that might have happened. It was a terrifying experience. But after that, I... I, I often worked late, but the door was always locked, and uh, I never made an appointment with anyone unless one of my colleagues was there. Wow, wild. Um, one of the things that struck me as I was reading it is just the writing is so good. You're a very, very good writer, um, but you said when you were working at the magazines, you didn't write that much. Is that right? That's true, because I was, I was editing other people's copy. I was really... I was really the only one who did line editing right. um, because I was I was better at it than my colleagues, and and my colleagues were busy writing articles for the magazine. So that's sort of how it it fell into place. Um, I, I I hope that I've become a better writer with everything I've done over the years. I've done seven or eight books, and uh, I I completed Did You Sleep with the Models in. Oh, I guess last year, uh, 2022. But I find that posting it on Substack, it's a very different, uh, very different format, a very different game. And of course, I'm adding illustrations as many as I as I can. But I go over every chapter many, many times, proofing it and and making sentences better. So the, I'm, thank you very much for for the compliment. But I think writing is really like acting. Actors who seem just to walk onto the screen uh, effortlessly, they have worked for hours, years and years and hours and hours in, a, in order to do that. I think writing is the same way. I notice a lot of writing is rather careless. I try to make mine, I try to pay great attention to the craft of writing, meaning getting every word in place, having a certain rhythm. I like to think that my that my writing could almost be scanned like poetry. Uh, not that it's poetic, but it has a certain rhythm, I hope. I certainly try for that. Well, it certainly comes across, and, it, and it's very, um, very pleasurable to read. You wrote a book called All About, All About Eve, about the, the movie All About Eve. Um, I know it was excerpted in Vanity Fair, and it, was, it, 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 it did really well. I remember seeing it on the shelves, and I'm going to pick it up now that I know that it's you. Um, what do you love about that movie? Why, why did you want to write about that movie? Well, I, shortly after arriving in New York in the 70s, I attended a, a screening, a double feature, at the Elgin Theater in Chelsea, a double feature of All About Eve and Sunset Boulevard. This was standard fare at that theater and certain other revival houses back then. Right. Those two movies, a huge gay following, and... Uh, I had never seen it before. I had all, I'd heard about it, of course, but it's rather captured my imagination. And then a few years later, in fact, when I was at Mandate, I met someone, and we've lived together for uh, 11 years, and he was a great fan of All About Eve. And so we started watching it uh, on VHS, but that was before DVD. We watched uh, if we had nothing else to do on a Saturday night or so, he would say, well, let's watch All About Eve. So we watched it probably a dozen or more times over the years. And I became more and more interested in it. And he and I would throw these quotes back and forth right. to each other, you know. And so it sort of it sort of got under my skin. And I, uh, then after I moved to Dallas in the late 90s, I decided that I would uh, write a book about it. There had not been a making-of book on All About Eve. There had been very few making-of books about any movie, uh, any movies back then. Al Jean Harmetz had done two. She had written uh, about the making of Casablanca, 
and also The Wizard of Oz, and she, she did a very good job on both. So I, I read both of those books and sort of learned how she did it, and uh, I thought, well, I can do this myself. I did a lot of research. Uh, several, uh, the only cast member alive was the Celeste Holm, and she was very uncooperative. She was really just uh, quite nasty from the beginning. But I talked to the to the son of um, of the director Joseph Mankiewicz. I talked to Tom Mankiewicz, and later I talked to his other son Chris. Right. Uh, I talked to the surviving uh, family members of various people. I I I found that worlds of information that I never dreamed of. And uh, next thing you know, there's I have an agent who uh, sells the book to St. Martin's, and it's in print. But if you read it, please read the paperback. The hardback has a lot of typos. St. <laughs> Martin's had a very uh, slovenly general manager at the time. Okay. Uh, fortunately, she left and I had a I had a very good general manager and editor and copy editor after that. But the paperback is the one to read, and it also has an added chapter that is not in the hard. I love that. What's something you found in your research where you're like, oh my gosh, this is going to be amazing for the book? Uh, well, really, a lot of so many things. I had always been a huge fan of Shaja Gabor of all the Gabors right. from, from the age of eight. I was, and of course, my my latest printed book is called Finding Jaja. I the love Unfold. that. I read about that, and you know, I read that it was optioned by Amy Sherman Palladino. Is that right? Yes, it, it's under option to uh, her. I hope she'll decide to do yes, something. Yes, we want to know about the Gabors because uh, they are they've been in our lives forever, but we don't know them, right? That's very true, and the you know, but going back to uh, to uh, something astonishing about. Uh, all about Eve. Jaja was married to George Sanders at the time. Oh wow! And she was she was desperate to break into show business. She she had done a bit of oh just terrible acting on the stage in Vienna as a young girl. Right. You know, but she had, she had this dream of becoming uh, a movie star in Hollywood. So she wanted to be, she wanted a part in All About Eve, and she badgered George Sanders who was very dismissive. He knew that she, she was not an actress. And she even appeared on the set one day to, to badger Joe Manquitz. Give, darling, give me a part in your movie. <laughs> but uh, he, was, he was having fun of it. The part she wanted, I guess she read the script, she wanted to play Phoebe, the girl at the end, <laughs> you know, who has, who has broken into Eve Harrington's apartment. Right. Zsa was much too old for that. Phoebe is a high school girl, and Zsa was in her 30s. But, you know, one of the many charming things about Zsa was her complete divorce from reality. <laughs> I love it. I, I, I'm going to have to check that book out as well. Um, going back to Did You Sleep With the Models, you do a, a whole chapter about Christian Bjorn. The, um, but I didn't yeah. realize he was a model before he became a filmmaker. Only briefly. He, he did three films for Falcon and... Uh, he did several layouts, and then he, he went to the other side of the camera. I met him when on my first trip to L.A. in uh, summer of 1982. He was uh, just a young man then, getting started. I think he was still doing his, his modeling at that point. And we stayed in touch. Then he went to Brazil, and he wrote many articles for the magazine, travel articles and, and the like. But he, he became a top-notch a top notch photographer. So we used, I think we used his work, his Brazilian models and, and models that he met traveling to South Africa, Australia, and everywhere else. I think we used more of his models than, any, than the models of any other photographer. And he, he lives in Barcelona now. We had a two-and-a-half-hour phone conversation a month or so ago. And he's still still going strong. I'm happy to say. Right, and it was interesting to read the the um, the piece about him because you see how the business has changed and how his budgets have changed. And he used to do yes, these big yes. epic things, and now it's like an afternoon in a place in in Barcelona or something. It's just very interesting, and in that he's still doing his thing. It's amazing. He has a blazing website. If you go to ChristianBjorn.com. You'll see, it's, and it's not safe for the office, I might add. <laughs> uh, all the good things aren't. Um, how old were you when you were doing Editor-in-Chief? How old were you when you got that gig? Oh, 
Do you think that a Gabor fan is going to reveal his <laughs> age? Because I just have this image of you as, like, sort of, you know, thrown into this thing, and I just wanted to get an idea. But you don't need to say if you don't want to. I was still, I was, I was barely out of rompers at the okay. time. <laughs> That's good. That's all we need. Um, why did you leave the magazines? I was, I was burnt out, basically. Yeah. I had done it. I had done it. I had done it. You know, it. I, I, I thought if I, if I see another naked man, I, I'll go, I'll go straight. I'll become heterosexual. <laughs> uh, it, it becomes a grind. Yeah. And but the, the thing that really, uh, that made my decision, I went to. Let's see, in late '85, I went to England and uh, Ireland on vacation for several weeks. And uh, I came back, jet-lagged, of course, and on my desk was a memorandum from George Mavidi, the publisher, saying that, that from now on, uh, jeans were not acceptable attire for the office. It was the most ridiculous thing that I've ever come across, and it really hit me wrong. And I, I wrote him <laughs> my resignation letter that day. Uh, it, was a, it was a silly whim on his yeah, part. So and he tried. Dumb. He tried to talk me into staying. He even offered to raise my salary, and he was—he was such a tight one. He—he he would say to me if I—if my budget overran a little bit, he said he would say to me, "Ah, oh, Mr. Staggs, you're sending me to the poorhouse." Uh, so uh, he was a penny pincher, yeah. but he actually offered to offered me a bit more money to stay on. But the time had come to leave, yeah. and on my desk that very day was a letter from Publishers Weekly. I had written a query to them before uh, going to England uh, about interviewing Pauline Kael, and the letter was from Sybil Steinberg, who was to be my editor at Publishers Weekly for a number of years, saying, yes, uh, you're accepted, the, the interview is accepted with Pauline Kael, um, and, you know, let's proceed. So uh, that's how it came about. I was rather... I was rather uh, Foolish, I guess, to jump out of a of a good job in uh, with the hope of becoming a freelancer, but it worked out. But it worked uh, out. There were moments of there were moments of anxiety along the way, but it finally it did work out. I I wrote freelance for a number of magazines before I started uh, writing my own books. Amazing. I uh, understand that you started this during the pandemic, writing this book. Did it help you cope with that time? It did. Yes, it did because. You know, from the beginning of the pandemic, just almost literally three years ago, I became rather reclusive like everybody else. I went to the grocery store and, uh, you know, wherever I had to go, but nowhere else. So I wrote, I completed this book and a couple of others wow. uh, during the pandemic. Look at you. I had, thought about this, I had thought about this book for many, many years, and a friend of mine, who uh, a contributor to the magazine at the time, encouraged me to do it. Uh, and uh, so I did. I, you know, fortunately, I have copies of every issue that I edited, so it was easy to, to go back and, and check all the facts and everything. And I was very fortunate in getting in touch with a number of contributors. Uh, Charles, Car Charles Harmon Cagle, who wrote a number of articles for me, I found him online, wrote him a letter, and he and I are in touch. He's now 90 years old, he tells me. Wow. And uh, we, he, he always sends me an email, a funny email after every post. I got in touch with Christian Bjorn uh, in Barcelona, uh, a number of other photographers. Of course, the sad part is that so many, many, many people have died along the way. Sure. Uh, almost all of the models are dead. Uh, unfortunately, I, Mickey Squires who uh, was the subject of a chapter a few weeks yeah. ago, I got in touch with him. Somebody put me in touch indirectly with him. He's an absolute delight. He's a charmer. I, we did not know each other back in the day because his pictures came from the photographer. We used them and never, you know, never had any contact with him. So I'm, it's been very nice getting in touch with old acquaintances and new, new ones from, uh, from those years. I get the feeling reading the Substack because that's a new f media for everybody. It's a, it's sort of a paid subscription thing that you're kind of delighting in the way it's evolving. Like people are coming out of the woodwork. It's more of a living project in a way, and also it, it, it seems like you're making some money off it. Talk to me about the Substack of it all. Well, 
I didn't know about Substack until last year. Right. Oh, maybe towards the end of the year. And I don't even remember how it came to my attention, but I started exploring it. In the meantime, this book had been rejected by a number of agents. Uh, there's a gay agent who he has a certain success rate with gay books. It, you know, he's, he's by no means a top agent, but right. he, he, he's okay. I queried him, I think, a year or so ago. And he, he wrote back immediately saying, I know your books. Please call me. Please right. get in touch. So we had a brief conversation, and he said he found out the, the direction that the book was going in. And he said, but the, this, was, this was the era of AIDS. The book should be about AIDS. And I, you know, he didn't even, he didn't have the sense to, to know that, yes, AIDS will certainly be a part of this. Uh, and it will be a theme running through. But people far better qualified than I have written about the AIDS epidemic, the, the AIDS pandemic. They've written about it from every angle. Uh, it would be stupid for me to try to do the same thing. And also, that's, uh, and as, a, as a reader, that's not what we went to those magazines for. That's not what they were meant to not. be about. They were, they were an escape, in a way. And they, they were an alternative to the thing that could kill you, Right. So. Yeah, exactly. So I, I cut the conversation short. I said, you know, you, you and I, uh, you're, we're not a good match. Yeah, this uh, work goodbye. Out. Okay. So when I started, when I started the uh, the Substack post, I I sent not, I notified a number of people, uh, acquaintances and strangers, and I included him in the email in the mailing. Right. <clears throat> and he wrote back immediately. He was not interested in this. But he said, if you ever do another Hollywood book, let me know. I'm sure I can sell it. But I'm, I'll probably not do another Hollywood book. And I, I, I think if a publisher, an editor called me today and said, oh, we want to, we want to, uh, we want to do, uh, we want to bring out Did You Sleep With the Models in Hardback, I'd say, uh, thanks anyway, but where were you two years ago? Right. And I think American publishing is in a very bad state of affairs. You know, if you look at the books at Barnes & Noble, if you look at the at what's being published, I, I can't stomach it. I really can't. <laughs> Substack, on the other hand, and there are other, there are other uh, uh, websites similar to Substack, but uh, I, I don't know much about them. Substack has given me the freedom that I always wanted. I don't have an agent breathing down right. my neck. I, I don't have an editor saying, oh, we can't, we, we can only do 10 pictures, we can't do 15, you know, I do whatever the, whatever I want to, whatever I damn well please, basically, as long as it's not libelous or something like that, and I, believe me, I know all the rules about libel and how to avoid it. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm very happy, it, it has allowed me to be creative, I, I hate to use that word because it sounds pretentious, but it really has, something has allowed me to be creative with my own work. Fortunately, I am a good proofreader. I'm a good editor. Right. So I, I think I have the advantage over other people who, who blog and who post. Right. And you also you also say, hey, if you notice a typo, let me know, because you could tell like, it's important to you. But also, I get the feeling that, it, that you can make a little money on it. I mean, you don't need to go into detail, but it's not, it's, it's not bad in that way. Am I right? Uh, that's true. Yeah. yeah, I have. You know, I have 500 subscribers. Not they're not. Believe me, they're not all paying subscribers, right. but I hope they will be. What's something that's come out of it that surprised you? Well, I love feedback from writers, uh, from subscribers. I wish more people would get in touch with me. Some of the comments are wonderful. Uh, a, a Jewish friend of mine. He's an acquaintance. We've never met, but he, he his mother was in school with Jaja. So I tracked him and his sister down when I was doing the Gamora book, right. and he and I have stayed in touch. He lives now in Mexico, um, but uh, after after the Al Parker chapter, he, this man did not had never known that Al Parker was Jewish. So after he read that chapter, he sent me an email saying, "Oi vey, I could plot. <laughs> Who knew the boy was Jewish?" <laughs> I got a huge laugh from that, and. That's so I encourage anybody who's listening to us today to, and reading Substack, get in touch, send a comment, yeah. or 
like, you know, like uh, a chapter or or if you don't, if you find something that you don't like, let me know. Yeah. I'll try to uh, to do better. I was going to offer to send you some of these magazines, but it sounds like you have all your issues that you need. Um, I do. Keep those for your own escape and thank comfort you. if you don't I even will. follow my drift. I was also <laughs> thinking of dropping off the one with the Pauline Kael interview to the New Beverly Cinema here in L.A., which is owned by Quentin Tarantino, because I've read that he's going to be writing his next movie about a critic – but it seems like it's Pauline Kael. I don't know if you've read that. The, the, the... I, I, have, I have heard about yeah. it. I, I don't know any details, but please do drop it off. Yes. But Pauline in private, was she was more vulnerable than she ever, ever showed right. in, in her writing. Interesting. Well, Tarantino was... needs to take you to lunch and uh, get some I... good details. I would be glad to talk to him, but do give him that. Uh, do give him that part. I may just drop it off and explain to the box office person. They'll probably think I'm crazy. Um, I have a couple more questions for you, but first, I want to remind people how they can find. Uh, Did you sleep with the models? How do you tell people to find it? I think the most direct way is samstags.substack.com. Otherwise, I think if you if you just Google Substack and then put in my name or the title, Did You Sleep With The Models? I think that'll take you there. Excellent. But I'm, I'm anything but an expert on all this sort of uh, Internet navigation. Well, that's what's so fun about it is this, this new medium, and you're, you're finding it as a way to tell this story from the 80s and engage in all these people and capture people's imagination like mine. Um, I have two more questions for you. Um, the first is when people say, Did You Sleep With The Models, what's your response? I usually say, Well, which one do you have in mind? Right. Did you sleep uh, with Dick Fisk or Casey Donovan or uh, Al Parker? I, I never met. I uh, never met Dick Fisk. Right. Uh, I met Al Parker only, you know, in the office. Uh, the, uh, Casey Donovan. I have a. Cha- in fact, Friday's chapter <laughs> I- includes Casey Donovan. The uh, the title is Icons. Yeah. Richard Locke, Casey Donovan. Yeah. Uh, who else? Uh, Jack Wrangler, right on. and one or two others. I, I, Casey Donovan was an acquaintance. He, I tell how I met him. He, he was a friend of a friend, and I ran into them on 8th Avenue one Sunday afternoon, and they all came to my apartment. We had a lovely conversation and, and evening, but I was, you know, I was never, I was never interested really in, in capturing a porn star, uh, so to speak. Right. Because for me, it was a business. It was a business, and you... You really, you always get in trouble if you mix business with the bedroom, I think. Interesting. Okay, here is my final question. And first of all, this has been a delight. Uh, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I could talk to you all day. Well, it's my pleasure. Yeah. I've enjoyed it also. Um, you write about this time as your editor of these magazines. What was wonderful about it? Being editor of Mandate, more than, than Honcho and Play Guy. It was, sometimes I would, I, I would be walking home from work or or just walking down the street in New York or doing whatever. And I would, I would suddenly realize I'm, I'm the editor of Mandate. I, I had never dreamed of such a thing. When, uh, when I, the first issues of Mandate, as I said earlier, came out in the 70s, 75, 76, and I, I saw them on the newsstand, I never dreamed that I would come closer to, to that magazine or to any other than a newsstand. So it was, it was really almost like, uh, uh, like the people who want to break into movies, right. and then suddenly uh, somebody says, how would you like to be in my next picture? You were living the dream. Yeah, yeah, I, I really was. But, uh, you know, even dreams have their grinding side, yeah, so course. it was a job as well, yeah. and it was it was overwhelming at times. Yeah, but three magazines. Uh, would I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. I, I really would not, even though it was considered quite... Uh, uh, lacking in respectability, right. but uh, so be it. I, I didn't care. I love that. And by the way, we all used our real names on those magazines. Not every, not everyone did at, at gay magazines, but we all did. Uh, I would permit, I would permit a fiction writer to use a pseudonym, right. but nonfiction had to be the, by the actual uh, that by the, the with the name of the actual writer. I love that. And your name also ha- could be a porn name because it has that hard edge to it. Like, it sounds like a sexy well, name, right? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, if you know anybody looking for a, for a model, uh, yeah. 
give them my number. It's never too late. It's never too late. Um, <laughs> this was so much fun. Thank you so much, Sam. Great. Thank you right. again for all of your very good questions. Oh, thanks, Sam. It's my pleasure. Thanks again to Sam Staggs. Check out his um, substack, Did You Sleep With The Models? All right, so this happened. Uh, the other night I went to a show here in Los Angeles at A Noise Within Theater. It's one of my favorite local theater companies in Pasadena. They were doing the play Kiss of the Spider Woman, which the movie with William Hurt was based on, and then which it also became a musical. And I hadn't seen anything. I hadn't seen the musical, the play, anything. Uh, since the 80s, probably. And so I was very curious to see how it would feel, especially sometimes storylines with with uh, stories with gay characters and, and scenarios. They don't always age that great. And I just remember William Hurt draping a lot of things around him. So I was a little bit like, okay, what's this play going to be like? What, um, and it was so beautiful. Oh, my gosh, it was so good. Uh, the actors are really amazing. Their names are Adrian Gonzalez and Ed F. Martin. It's just this beautiful love story about these two men who could not be more different, but they found a way to support and love each other. I don't know. It was just really beautiful, really moving. I cried. Makes me want to go back and look at the movie again and maybe see the musical somehow, some way. I'd love to. I don't know how. Maybe there's a pirated copy on YouTube or something. But, um, yeah, I was really, really glad I got to see it. And if you're in L.A. uh, and you want to see a beautiful love story that's really well-mounted, well-acted, um... Go see it. Check it out. It's at a noise within. All right. That's enough for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I want to give a shout out to AJ Sousa for mixing the episodes. My theme music is by Mark Daniels for placement music. We'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye. Bye.